When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Michael Lewis is one of America's most important living storytellers and he's going to be joining us in person in London on June the 7th. He'll be in conversation with The New Yorker's Sam Knight, sharing stories from his whole career, from his days as a Wall Street bond salesman right through to the pandemic. If you'd like to join us at Michael's event, head to our website and use the code HOWTOPOD on the ticket page. You'll receive a 20% discount on both live and live stream tickets. In anticipation, I wanted to share the recording of Michael's last appearance at HOWTO Academy when he told The Guardian's Owen Jones about The Fifth Risk, his book exploring the corrosion of the federal government under the Trump administration. Enjoy. What was it first that compelled you to write this book? And what was the aim, if you like? What were you aiming to do? Well, bring down Trump. Sensible. Is the short answer. But uh, let me, I'll walk you through. This, the book itself is a bit of a detour for me. I don't, you know, unlike you, I'm not usually trafficking in political journalism. And... Uh, didn't really ever imagine myself writing such a book. The steps were sort of this. So the election happens. I've just finished the last book, which is called The Undoing Project. And that book was about uh, the way people essentially misperceive risk as they move through the world. People making probabilistic judgments, as we all are, you know, as we move through the world. It was two psychologists' attempts to explain the mistakes we make when we're doing that. And one of the things that had fallen out of their work that I don't think I even dwelled on in the book I wrote, but that was interesting to me, was they played around with how people don't perceive changes in extremely remote, in the odds of extremely remote events. So if you take something that, like a catastrophe that has a one in a million chance of happening, or, or a payoff, or a lottery ticket that has a one in a million chance of, of paying off, and you move it to a one in 10,000 chance. People just think of it still as a remote thing. They don't realize that, they don't feel like it's 100 times more likely. And I don't know why I was thinking of this, but I was thinking of this when Trump was elected because I was thinking of what the, th- the, the thing he was about to be put in charge of, the federal government, which I've always thought of as, among other things, a kind of a, a manager of a, a portfolio of risks, mm-hmm. many of them existential risks. Mm-hmm. So I started to watch the way he was handling this new responsibility. And pretty quickly learned a couple of things that I just found, I still find extraordinary. I mean, I think you can't, the transition from Obama to Trump, you really can't pay too much attention to how it happened because uh, it, was, it was bizarre. What, what's supposed to happen is the outgoing administration is supposed to prepare 
briefings for the incoming administration. And the, Bush had been so good about doing this with Obama, and Obama was so grateful, and besides there were laws on the books that said he had to do it, that Obama went about preparing essentially the best course that's ever been prepared on how the U.S. government works. He, he deputed a uh, thousand people across the government, not just the White House, but the agencies of government, to write these briefing books. It took them the better part of six months to do, uh, so that when whoever won came in, they'd be up to speed quickly. And you know, the American government doesn't work like the British government. The American government is not run by a permanent civil service. It's run by the 4,000 people the president appoints right after he's elected to come and run it. And often these people, sometimes they have experience with what they're running, but often they're coming in cold. And so they come into the Center for Disease Control and they'll get a briefing about what happened when the Zika virus uh, entered the United States. How did they control it? How did they prevent lots of other people from getting it? It's, you know, technical matter after technical matter has very little ideological content. The briefings are the same whether a Democrat wins or a Republican wins. So these briefings get prepared, and Trump, on his side, had been required by law or strongly encouraged by law to prepare as a candidate for becoming president. But Trump didn't think he was going to win and didn't see the point of spending any money doing this. And in fact, uh, when his, uh, his advisor, Chris Christie, says, we've got to do this, Trump gets angry and says, you can do it, but you can't spend any money on it. Christie... Well, he's a bit more profane than that, isn't he? He yeah, says, he's, you're he's, stealing my fucking money. Stealing my fucking money. Get your hands off my fucking <laughs> money. And Christie does it anyway. He takes, he, he takes campaign funds and he builds what by independent assessments is actually a pretty good transition team. Hundreds and hundreds of people who are prepared to go into the Treasury Department and the Justice Department and the White House right after the election and figure out what the hell's going on here and who to put in to manage it. And they'd vetted a bunch of candidates to, for the most important jobs. And uh, every now and then during the campaign, Trump will read something in the newspaper about how Christie's been so active doing this. And he'll haul him in to scream at him again. And at, at one point tries to tell him to just unwind the whole thing because it's costing too much. And the only thing that stopped Trump from doing this is in this meeting, Steve Bannon says, how do you think it's going to look on Morning Joe, television show, if you, ha if you disband your transition operation? And Trump says, ah, oh, you got a point there. It's not going to look good. So we'll keep it. He keeps it to the point where he wins. Right after the day after the election, he fires the entire transition team. Um, now... Uh, We'll come back to why that happened, but, but he, so he was actually beside, beside himself. I mean, it had nothing to do with him, prepared in a way to walk into the job. He had a team, and he fires the entire team. And you have across the American government this bizarre spectacle of people sitting in conference rooms with briefing books open and little finger sandwiches laid out and parking spots left open, and nobody shows up. Not the first day, not the first week, not the first month. And in many cases, no one has ever showed up. So I found my, I, I thought the conceit of the book in the beginning was, I, I'll go get the briefings. I want to know, so if there's... You did his homework. I, did his, I would do his homework for him. Uh -huh. uh, that, that, that I just assume that if you're going to go about it in such a negligent fashion, this portfolio of risks the government runs are going to be amplified. But what are they? And I, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to do this. And this is more or less what I did. I mean, I, I, I cherry-picked the places I wanted to go into. But I found, I mean, I didn't finish this thing until three months ago. And three months ago, I was getting 
briefings that are, were really important briefings that had never been given before. And I would find myself in rooms with people saying, and they'd say, and these, weren't, these, were, these were permanent civil servants at this point, but sometimes it was former Obama people. Uh, and they'd say, they'd be so grateful I'd come to hear the briefing because no one else had. <laughs> and, 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 you know, at, at a point, it, 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 I started as a magazine piece, and it never ceased to be interesting. Uh, and it never ceased to be interesting, I think, for a couple of reasons. It got to the length it got for a couple of reasons. One was I was a little shocked by the things I found were being neglected. So the first place I go, you know, you can go anywhere. Where are you going to go? And I was looking around for an excuse to walk into one agency or another agency, and I saw that Trump had appointed Rick Perry to be Secretary of Energy, which sounds harmless enough. What does the Energy Department do after all? But I did remember that Rick Perry, when he was a presidential candidate, former governor of Texas, had called for the elimination of the, of the Energy Department. He had a list, didn't he? But he forgot one. He couldn't remember the name of it, though. Right. He says, I'm going to eliminate these three wasteful departments, and it's this and this, and I can't remember the last one. He but said, I'll get oops. Back. I'll, yeah. Oops, I'll get back to you. And, and he gets back, he says, oh, it's the energy department, right? So this guy is going to be in charge of that. Now, so I called up some people. I said, well, what does this place do? And they say, oh, we take care of the nuclear weapons. So, so <laughs> at this point, I think, well, I'll start there. Seems like an important place to start. And it was quite clear that Rick Perry, like most Americans, but unlike most people who were appointed to be Secretary of Energy, had absolutely no clue. I mean, no more clue than, than you, uh, what the Energy Department did, and he was going to be running it. And you start wandering around and asking questions, what, what are you doing? And what they're doing takes your jaws on the floor. They are, they're not just assembling nuclear weapons and testing nuclear weapons, but they've got teams of people roaming the earth trying to clean up uh, what remains of loose nuclear materials from the, from the, so, the former Soviet Union. They, they spend, they're going to spend $100 billion cleaning up the sites where the plutonium was made for the atom bombs in World War II, and if they don't, the entire Pacific Northwest is going to be poisoned. I mean, it's just one thing after another. Um, so I thought, I got into it far enough that I thought, I kind of wanted, to, I, I want to see more of this. And the book, uh, and I'll shut up after this, but the book, um, the question was always selection. It was very similar to The Big Short. The Big Short is a book about the financial crisis. And it was a book, and, and, when I, and what triggered the big short was my realization that there had been some people in the financial sector who had seen it coming and made a fortune betting on the collapse of the financial system. And there were kind of 15 people who had, who had gone all in yeah. on this thing. And the question was, who do you pick to dramatize the story? And similarly, in this case, I had, you know, 15 government departments, roughly, to choose among, and the question was, how do you choose? And in the end, my criteria was a little loose, but it was, if it's a department everybody kind of knows is important and kind of knows what it does, like treasury or state, I'm gonna leave it to one side. If it's actually not critical to the society, like the Department of Education, you, could rem you probably could live without the Department of Education. There'd be a price to it, but it, it's not as big a deal, and small. Uh, I'll leave it to one side. What's left? And what was left was a basket of about six, six of them, and I almost arbitrarily picked three of them and made a book out of that. And the point was really to dramatize, to, and I, I'm amazed actually I'm here even talking about it because I thought this is an American book 
for the American people. Dramatize to the American people what the hell their government does, because once they understand it, they really will not want this guy running it. Uh, and, and so that, that was the goal. That was the idea. In terms of Trump's approach to the transition process, if it can even be dignified with such a description, in terms of kind of what drove it, and these are not mutually exclusive suggestions on my part, uh, obviously there's incompetence. There's... I feel like I'm talking to someone who's reading his email, but, but, <laughs> but, but that's okay. <laughs> just getting texts but, but, from my mum at the moment, actually, which I was just being, dealing it's with. It's actually being incredibly impressive <laughs> if what you're doing right now is texting your mother while talking it's, to me. It's multitasking. It's multitasking. But, but, She's got some very, very insightful questions. Yeah, Michael. all right. Um, incompetence being one, arrogance. I mean, he said to Chris Christie, who I almost felt sorry for during this book, which was, uh, which was a, a, an interesting experience. You and I are so smart, we can leave the victory party two hours early and do the transition ourselves. That's what Trump said. He did. Trump said that to, to Chris, Chris Christie. Christie. Uh, disinterest. The other, um, which I'm also interested in, is, is, is ideology. Because in the 1960s, you got the great society programs under uh, uh, LBJ. Uh, so the government intervened in... in, in you know, to alleviate poverty, the war on poverty, and so on. And Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican presidential candidate in 1964, who, who stood against what was seen as this creeping uh, statist ideology and was humiliated in a, in a, in a landslide. right. And a shellacking, indeed. But what you saw then with Reaganism, uh, 1980 onwards, he railed against big government. There was a consensus on that. The New Democrats, Bill Clinton, he said in uh, the State of the Union address, I think in 1996, the era of big government is over. That government became so demonized in the United States that is, is that also at play? It's not just his arrogance, his disinterest, but he's got that ideology almost distilled to its kind of no, logical he's the end game. That's like, this is right. So the, the, the reason I... So I didn't finish my soliloquy. But the reason I hung around so long with this subject was I found awesome the people who were working in the government. I mean, they were just great characters. I fell in love with these people, these mission-driven, terribly important people who could be doing a lot better for themselves out in the private sector, but they actually cared about the mission. And it was so at odds with whatever vague preconception I had about what a government worker was, what a civil servant was. But I've been on the receiving end my whole lifetime, basically, of this propaganda. I mean, the, 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 no, one has, no one has gotten elected selling the government in the United States for a long time. People have gotten elected selling the idea that the government's the problem. And we've got this, this institution, two million people work for it, that is expected to do its job when all anybody does is kick it. Uh, what organization thrives when all you do is kick it? The people who work there have been on the receiving end of abuse and slander. You, ne you never hear about the good things that happen. You only hear about the bad things. So we've been hearing this as Americans forever. Uh, the elector just takes it as... Rick Perry can get up and say, we're going to eliminate three departments. And only because he forgets one of the, the names of one of them does anybody think of anything of it. Yeah. it. That's the only reason it's obviously stupid. But it is obviously stupid because what those departments do is actually obviously critical. But nobody knows what they do anymore. And I think basically what's happened, and one of my subjects says this in the book, is that the American people have ceased to be citizens and become customers. They think, you know, they don't, they, 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 the level of civic engagement has been low. The level of civics education has been low. Obama bought, the Obamas, Michelle and Barack, bought the film rights to this book mm -hmm. 
because they saw in office this was a huge problem that people just did not understand what the government did. And this might be a way to get this across on film. Do essentially what I did in a series of documentaries. So Trump is, you don't get Trump in this job unless people have bought into the idea that the government's not kind of nonsense. You don't, that he can get elected saying, lock her up, build a wall and whatever, and that's about it. And nobody asks him any more deeper questions. And he can get elected not knowing a thing about the government. And he can be in office not being at all curious about it. it, it it's, a, it's an astonishing a testament to the indifference and our hostility of the American people towards their own government. And when I, you know, you, th you think of it, 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 but Trump is not the cause of this, right? I mean, this, this goes back, this predates him by a long way. And, I th and as I was working on the book, the image that kept coming to mind was this machine, this incredibly important, exquisitely calibrated machine uh, that's been left to rust. And it's still doing its job, but it's just rusting and rusting and rusting. And now this guy's going to come in with a sledgehammer and, and destroy it. And he, in this case, he's really kind of a symptom. And the problems that predate Trump just reinforce uh, Americans' sense of disdain for the enterprise. It, it has not been invested in in a very long time, the government. We have, in, in this, this one statistic is very telling, in just information technology in the United States government, there are five times more people working in this over the age of 60 than under the age of 30. I mean, it's, it's just this, it's this aging, uncared for thing. And of course it's going to have some problems when it's, when it's treated this way. But no one has come along to sell the narrative, this isn't a problem. This, is, this institution isn't the problem. The problem is the way we've been treating this institution. We're the problem. This institution is not just not the problem, it is the only tool we have to deal with some of the most difficult problems we face. Uh, and that's what I keep waiting for. I'm waiting for, it's probably, that's going to come from a Democrat, but someone who can sell the government, uh, who can sell the narrative I'm trying to sell in the book. I mean, in terms of ideology, one of the things that I think would or should particularly horrify people in this room, I mean, you say, you know, you're surprised that this has had an impact outside the United States. Sadly, what Trump does has a dramatic impact on all of us, not least this small hiccup called climate change. There was never a good time for Donald Trump to become president. When we're facing an existential threat to the future of human civilization, it's a bit of a bummer. So, when, uh, in terms of these briefings, so they come in, they get all these briefings, they don't, they flick through these briefings, they disregard, they're, they're not interested. They're far more interested, for example, in rooting out officials who've been to climate change meetings, who have any interest so in to the subject extent whatsoever. So, to the extent they engage... What happens in the transition, it's riveting because it's so disorganized, it's hard to say it's one thing going on. There's several things at once going on. One is Trump's utter mismanagement and neglect, his sense that this is all about me and I can do it myself. That's part of it. But there's no positive mission. So what rushes in when there's no positive mission are narrow interests. So in the parts of the government that deal with that might confront climate change, the Energy Department being one of them. There's a lot of research going on there in alternative energies. The Department of Energy is responsible for the solar power industry in the United States. All the early investment came out of there. They do send in a couple of people who ask for a list of names of any scientists in the Department of Energy who've participated in climate change meetings. And they do this in the Department of Agriculture. They do this several places. The EPA, 
and they pull down lots of data off websites or make more in, all climate data inaccessible. This is the fossil fuels industry. The people who are doing this, the people he sent in are lobbyists from the fossil fuels industry. There's, I mean, there, there, there are many more examples of this sort of thing. But yes, so what, the, the, the idea was just to paralyze, intimidate, frighten anybody who might be dealing with those problems. I mean, in terms of that, the fossil fuel vested interests, I mean, obviously Trump stood as this supposed populist. He was a plutocrat posing as a, as a, as a you know, standing up for the little guy against the elites. And, uh, you know, and, and we talk about Goldman Sachs and all the rest and then stuff his administration full of them. But one, I mean, that point about, you know, Rick Perry, appointed energy secretary, he doesn't do anything. Instead, you get this lobbyist, Thomas Pyle, who's funded by ExxonMobil and all the rest. And in this total disorganization, these are the vested interests that kind of fill... Yeah, let me give this even a better example. The most purest example I found of this, it's uh, the view that the only real reason to come work in government is to come and loot it or, or to organize it for your own interests, um, own narrow interests. In the Commerce Department, which is another section of the book, which actually has very little to do with commerce. It's, it's, all these departments are misnamed for a start. Energy should be the Department of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, agriculture should be the Department of, of Rural, of Rural America, or Department of Food, feeding people, I guess. But, uh, but the Department of Commerce is the Department of Data. It's, it's the place where a vast amount of data about the society is collected. It's how we know who we are as a people. The census is there, all the economic statistics are there, and very oddly, the National Weather Service is there. And, you know, why is a, it's a, there's a long story to that. But, but the National Weather Service, you know, kind of two-thirds of the budget of the whole department is spent accumulating the data required for, to make weather predictions. And it's, it's, it's set, putting satellites in orbit. It's, it's building radar stations around the country. It's, it's uh, putting buoys on the ocean to collect ocean temperatures, so on and so forth. And... Um, so that's billions of dollars a year get spent, spent on this. And the data is made publicly available, and the, the availability of the data is critical to the progress in the world. That you probably may not know it, but your weather forecast is much better than it was 20 years ago. Uh, you're, it's, it's something like you, the fifth-day forecast now is as good as the one day was 20 or 25 years ago. Hurricane tracking, much more precise. People are warned, tor tornado warnings are a little better. But there's been real progress made that's led to that's saved lives and, made, and it's been made businesses more efficient and so on and so forth. But the basic collection of the data is, is at the bottom of it all, and that's clearly a public sector function. It doesn't, doesn't pay any one private entity to collect all that data. In this world of weather prediction, there are private companies. There are plenty of them. There's the Weather Channel. There are people mouthing off about the weather all for, and, and selling ads alongside their entertainment. One of these companies... In, at least in the United States, is a complete outlier from all the rest. It's called AccuWeather. AccuWeather has, for 20 years, been on a mission to try to prevent the National Weather Service from communicating with the American public, except if life is threatened imminently. So uh, they want all weather forecasts to be... You have to pay for your weather forecast, basically, in one way or the other. And have, they've even had senators introduce legislation that says the National Weather Service can't, even though you've paid for all this data, can't tell you what the weather's going to be tomorrow because we, AccuWeather, want to do this and we can charge for it. Um, into the job of running the National Weather Service, Trump appointed the CEO of AccuWeather. 
It's, it's, a, it's a family-owned business. Everybody, the board of directors of AccuWeather is, is half his family members. All the shares are owned by brothers and cousins and whatever. And this man comes in and claims that he has no vested interest in, in the enterprise. He's going to run it in a, dispa- in a kind of dispassionate way. But the first thing he's going to do is gum up. I mean, where he makes his money is in the gap in competence between AccuWeather and the National Weather Service. And right now, the National Weather Service is as good, if not better, than AccuWeather. But if he can gum up the National Weather Service, either make the predictions worse or make the data not available, uh, then AccuWeather, which will still be taking the government's data for free, uh, can charge more for it. And you see where this goes. I mean, if you let this loose, the Senate has, the Senate has not confirmed him. But, but you could see the signal that's being sent. The signal is, we don't care about the public space. We don't care about the public enterprise. All I care about is who can make money from this. I, I'll auction the job to the highest bidder kind of thing. And nobody cares. I mean, you know, that, that I, I, I would have thought, you know, there are a couple, there's a senator from Hawaii who's gone to great lengths to stall that, that nomination. Uh, and he may succeed. But it's amazing to me that the whole society isn't up in arms. And this sort of thing is going on ar- around the administration. In the Department of Agriculture, a vast place, $160 billion budget a year, there is a $3 billion a year research and development budget. And what these people are, it's run by, it's always been run by scientists, agricultural scientists, dispersing these dollars out to interesting research projects, almost all having to do with climate change. How we're going to preserve the food supply, how we're going to grow food and graze animals and all the rest in a different climate. Where, how, what the seeds are going to be like, all the rest. And, you know, this is complicated. This is a technical matter. Person who Obama had doing it was a woman who had done breakthrough agricultural research herself and knew the field like the back of her hand and was respected by everybody in it. And into this job, Trump appoints a right wing talk radio show host from Iowa who supported him, who had some shady ties to Russia, and who has no kind of science degree. And this, that only happens because the American public generally has no idea there's even a research program. That only happens because they think whatever the government has done is, does is not that important. It's this very false narrative about the government that has managed to worm its way into the American mind. It's that the government's the problem. When the, a true history of the, America, the relationship of the American government to the American economy is the American government's been the leader. Without, it's been the leader in a lot of basic research and development like the internet doesn't happen with the American government, right? GPS doesn't happen without the American government. Treatments for AIDS don't happen without the American government. In every sector, the basic research that led to the breakthroughs that could then be commercialized start with public investments. They are almost, they're like the lead venture capitalist and have done it pretty well. Trump is trying to defund all of that. To what end, I don't know. I mean, like where, where he thinks this all leads, I don't know. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. 
I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Because there's a fascinating book by Mariana Mazzucato, The Entrepreneurial State, and it yes. gives the iPhone, which I am using to chat to my mother. No, yeah. but right now. No, but, you know, GPS, the internet, yeah. uh, Siri, these are all public sector innovations that have been... But this dogma... She takes apart that phone and tells Indeed. you how much of that phone, basically, mm-hmm. uh, is, is uh, born of research that, that was started with, with the American government. So this stuff is incredibly important. It's taken for granted. And what happens over and over, even with Republican administrations, up till now, is yes, they get elected campaigning against this enterprise. But the minute they get in and see what it does, they go, whoop, you know, we don't want to actually cut this. We want to keep doing this. And over and over, people come in, slightly contemptuous at the management level, and they leave saying, those are the best people I ever worked with. You know, people come in from Goldman Sachs and leave saying, I never met more committed, smarter, kind of mission-driven people than these people I'm working with. And in this case, it hasn't happened. In this case, Trump has come in and he's appointed all these people who are either hostile, after their own interests, totally unqualified, indifferent. I mean, in the agriculture department, there was a list that was published of the resumes of the people who finally came up, showed up for the jobs. And the litmus test, the only test for most of these jobs was they had been loyal to Donald Trump. Now, already you have a problem there, right? Mm -hmm. Whoever was loyal to Donald Trump was a bozo. Uh, I mean, that that anybody who knew anything during the campaign, Republican or Democrat, anybody who had any collision with the actual facts of the government wanted nothing to do with him. So they all had to be completely loyal to him. And the resumes were, you, you couldn't, Monty Python could not have written these resumes. It was like, it was like uh, under skills, pleasant demeanor. Uh, no college degrees. Uh, jobs, a, a cabin attendant at a, at a yacht club. You know, uh, these people who were just completely unsuited for things, mainly young men. There was one encounter. So when the energy, our nuclear arsenal was briefly untended. Uh, and, and, oops. oops, the guy who runs it, who had run it, I think he ran it, they got in, in the little box that's on top of the nuclear arsenal in the energy department. He may have run it under Bush and under Obama. Anyway, who knows whether he's a Democrat or Republican, nobody cares. He, he former military guy, had packed up his boxes. Normally, someone would call him and say, we want you to stay, or we've got someone who's going to replace you. But, had, but, but after the inauguration, had packed up his boxes and moved them home because no one had bothered to tell him what to do. And some, it wasn't until some senator called the White House and says, oops, you know, you've got there's the nuclear weapons. You've got to have someone there. Do they call him and say, Go back, get back in your office. So he gets back in his office and receives sooner or later a delegation from Team Trump. And it's a couple of young guys, these knuckleheads. I mean, just guys, these like 28-year-old guys who don't know anything about anything, who come in and the spirit with which they interact with this serious professional who knows a lot about this subject is we're going to figure out why you're doing it stupidly. We're going to find the smart way to manage the nuclear weapons. And, and he, the, the, the admiral or general or whatever he is says, look, 
It's a complicated business managing a nuclear arsenal. We can't, we can't drop bombs and test them anymore. It causes too much trouble. So we test them inside of computers. This is, it's complicated to do that, to do it in a way that you know they're going to work when you push the button, or that they're gonna, not going to go off when you don't push the button. And there are places we do this. They're called the national laboratories. It's, it's Livermore, it's Los Alamos, it's the Berkeley National Lab. These are national treasures. They're giant science R&D labs that attract because they have funding and because they're looking into the distant future and are willing to do all kinds of exciting things that industry is not willing to do because it's not going to pay right away. They attract really smart young physicists. And these physicists come in to work on this or that, and they see that they're also, there's this also this other project called the, you know, testing the nuclear weapons, and they get kind of dragged in by the by. And these are the people we need. We need, to, we need those people, we need to encourage them. And the young guys go, that's stupid. And they go, what do you mean that's stupid? He goes, you want people who wanted to be experts in nuclear weapons from the time they were young managing the nuclear arsenal. He goes, actually, that's not who you want. You don't want. If you don't want the person who wanted to build a nuclear weapon in his garage when he was 10 years old in charge of the nuclear arsenal, that's not who you want. But they, they had these, these kind of conversations. To the extent the conversation happens between the incoming administration and the existing structure, it's that kind of thing. You, you can't make it up. And the wonder is that the world hasn't exploded yet, mm. uh, right? The wonder <laughs> we'll, we'll is... We'll come That's not happened yet, yeah. but let's just emphasize the yeah. I mean, I mean well, you know, it comes across often that, you know, Trump, Trumpism, so much as it is a coherent ideology, but you've got these kind of vultures circling the US administration looking for juicy morsels. And, I mean, one of the things that that's was... That's one strain of it. It's not the only strain. No, of course, that's one strain. It's also the mad libertarians. Exactly. They're not that many of them, but they are a few. They, the kids who... The, the guys, true believers. They, the people who read Ayn Rand when they were 16 and couldn't get a date. And, uh, and, and it's sort of like rationalized for them why they couldn't get a date. Because they were superior, right? They were, they, they were the great man. And, uh, and they have this whole construct that... The society is, you know, the government is holding them da down, and they've never done anything in their lives. They sit in the think tank in Washington and take money from the Koch brothers. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, though, there's that strain. Fragile masculinity has a lot to answer for, doesn't Peter it? Thiel. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Thiel, whatever his name is. He was, the, he, was the, he was the standard bearer, but there were a lot of young ones. There was some of that, too. But you've got, I mean, what I just found chilling was this kind of suppression of, of, of collecting data on things which are very important, which the Trump administration either opposed dealing with, like tackling climate change, or just didn't care about, I don't know, food safety or, or poverty or, you know, I mean, there are 40 million Americans who rely, who are, who are food insecure, many of them rely on food stamps. They have no interest in, in collecting data which you need to tackle them. I mean, what is going to be the consequences of this down the line? What's going to happen? So this is a really good subject that someone smarter than me will address. The, the whole, what can be done. The Obama administration started to address this. Mm -hmm. the, the data, I don't know about your government, but our government collects massive amounts of data that's just now, it's becoming more and more accessible because of the mm -hmm. cheapening of computer mm -hmm. technology power. And so you can, actually, you can actually start to play with the data and find patterns in the data. And one of the characters in the book is the guy from Silicon Valley, his name is D.J. Patil, who was the first chief data scientist of the United States, uh, who was brought in kind of midway through Obama's tenure. And he, he was riveted by the, by the opportunity and, you know, points out that were it not for the statistics that were made publicly available about prescription medication, mm -hmm. 
we, wouldn't, we still wouldn't know that there's an opioid crisis in America. There are more people dying every year from opioid overdoses than died in combat in the Vietnam War. Uh, and that was only detected by these strange patterns found in the data of the distribution of opioids. They found others. I mean, the, the stuff they found, really interesting stuff. Uh, when, after Ferguson, the White House convened, there are no good national crime statistics, and the gun lobbies are really good at, at stymieing the attempts to collect really good national, gun violence especially, statistics. But they convened at the White House, these new data people, police chiefs of 12 big American cities, and they had them come with their local data. And they asked the question of the data, does excessive use of police force correlate with anything? Mm. And one of the things they found was that it correlated very strongly with what the policeman had been doing right before he used excessive force. And police cops who had had been on either a suicide call or a domestic abuse call, were, who were then dispatched right after that, were more likely to use excessive force mm, mm. than before. And you learn that and you think, well, you got, it's not a total solution, but you've, you've learned something. You take that cop and you let him have a little time off before he goes off on his next thing. Uh, but they were, the, the, there were researchers at Stanford who were, ma- who were mining the census and the Internal Revenue Service data in new, completely new ways. And you see these wonderful papers coming out of Stanford now. They're, I mean, one that kind of explains a bit what's going on in American politics. They show that 90% of the children born in, ni- in 1940 were more likely to be economically better off than their parents. And only 50% of children born in 1980 were. I mean, you see, you know, just, it's like self, societal self-knowledge is available in this data. And the the Trump administration, till now, has been doing the opposite of what the Obama administration did. Obama signed an executive order saying all, all government data will be machine-readable, whatever that means. But I think it means you can read it and you can use it. And, and, and Trump's been pulling, the Trump administration has been pulling it down wherever it, it conflicts with some narrow commercial interest in all kinds of bizarre ways. So the Department of Agriculture does basically everything. It does all this odd stuff that has nothing to do with agriculture, but it does monitor all disputes between animals and people, all conflict. So if you can imagine your conflict, I don't know what problems you have with animals, but imagine your conflict, and if if you've had one, uh, they may be there. So when, uh, remember the miracle on the Hudson, when the plane landed on the Hudson River? And it was because the... Uh, geese went into the engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a failure of the Department of Agriculture because their job is to kill the geese around the airports. Wow. Yeah, I know. I mean, there are pictures of USDA people with shotguns at LaGuardia. And I'm serious. I'm, yes, it's awesome. But, but the Trump administration, the, the animal abuse cases, so they prosecute animal abuse cases, so circuses and ranchers. And Trump sent in, he sent in, it's hard to say you're for animal abuse, I mean, it's one, it's, it, it, I mean it, it just calls to mind people in wellies with a sheep up on their back hind legs. It just, it's a horrible image. But, but they sent in a guy who's basically for his whole life is a pro-animal abuse lobbying firm. And they call itself, it's got an odd name. It's called like For the Harvest or something. It's got some strange name. But he instantly 
removed from the Department of Agriculture website a list of all the cases that they had brought successfully against ranchers and circuses. The elephants get abused, apparently. Uh, and so you can't, you can't get it anymore. Uh, that's, the spirit has been to, to pull the information back. And that's a, that, along with a lot of the other stuff that the Trump administration is doing, you feel that the cost, much of the cost, is opportunity cost. What won't we learn? Because we, we have a census that's not done properly. Uh, what won't we know? Because we eliminated effectively the research and development budgets in the, in the Department of Energy. So a lot of things that won't happen. What problems won't we solve? Uh, but because of what they're doing. It's a lot of that. The, uh, that's the, the feeling of what's going on right now to me. Now, obviously, we're meeting uh, day after the, the elections yesterday um, in which the Democrats won back the House of Representatives, which they lost back in 2010. A great, great victory, said Donald Trump. It, he did. He said it's, uh, it's... The most beautiful victory. The most beautiful, so beautiful. victory. He's, uh, he's, he's exactly what he's been saying just, yeah, I, uh, I just an hour before we turned up. Yeah. Um, what I'm interested in is, what, what do you think this means? I mean, obviously, this is, he was always going to say it was a huge victory. But it does strike me that, I mean, in 1994, the Republicans won the House of Representatives when, you know, under Clinton, they called the Republican Revolution, yep. uh, and in 2010. And the, the Republican approach is, uh, is you demonize and delegitimize your opponents. Across America, they're gerrymandering, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're engaged in voter suppression uh, on a grand scale. They're really awful people. They are real Bastards, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. So these, ba- anyway. But 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 the Democrat response, Nancy Pelosi, the uh, the minority leader, she said in response that the Democrats were going to engage in the bipartisan marketplace of ideas, which doesn't exactly sound like she's coming out swinging there. What I mean is, isn't that true? The Democratic establishment basically is kind of just walk all over me, don't hurt me, please. Whilst the Republicans are there waging this yes. all-out war of yeah. annihilation against their opponents. No, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary that I can remember when I, I wrote a, I moved into the Obama's life when he was president and wrote a piece about him. And uh, I can remember him saying to me, you know, it's strange. There are two relationships in my life that are pure zero sum. One is with, with Vladimir Putin. By zero sum, he meant if, if, any, if there's anything good in a deal for me, they're against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was Putin and the other was uh, the congressional Republicans. Yeah. And if democracy fails in America, there will be a, and someone comes and writes the book, there'll be a very long chapter to write about Mitch McConnell, that he's, he's the chief culprit, the, mm-hmm. sen- the Senate majority leader, and a miserable bastard. Uh, I mean, just a miserable bastard. But, but the... Uh, so, Trump, you can see what's happening. It's funny. This beautiful victory he just won. Unfortunately, he did lose the House of Representatives. And further, unfortunately, they can investigate him. There are at least three committees that I think can have access to his tax returns. Uh, which, I mean, you know how he said that he could shoot, he could walk out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and his, say, his yeah. supporters still wouldn't abandon him? You've got to wonder what's in those tax returns that he thinks he can't show them those. It's <laughs> worse than that. Quite literally massacre it, 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 What it is, that, I, who knows what it is, but, uh, but he, Trump, just before I was coming over here, I was watching his press conference. Did anybody see this press conference? It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. He, he, sa- he basically, what he says is, if they pro- he starts offering, te- teasing the audience with all the deals he wants to do with the Democrats now. Deals he never would have done a week ago. Uh, but he wants to, like, legitimize the dreamers. He wants to, you know, all these things they'd really like on the condition they don't investigate him. 
That's the deal. The new deal is I'm going to tease you with all the stuff we could do together because he doesn't care about the policy at all. He'll do anything, but he'll only do it. Otherwise, he says we're not going to do any deals and I'm going to blame them for all the stuff that didn't happen. That's what he's just said. In the, and in the middle of it all, he told the CNN reporter he was a bad person. He did. He said, you're a bad person. He said, and called him the enemy of the people. He called him the enemy of the people. Right. I mean, with the Democrats, though, I mean, it does sometimes, with the Democratic establishment, there seems... He's an amazing character, isn't he? He's Can one you believe level, he's president of the level. United States? But that is a danger, though, isn't he it? He is the worst person in the whole world to be president of the United <laughs> States. There is, if you, you could, I swear that it isn't a matter of you could pick another American out of a hat and put them in the job and know that they would do a better job, no matter what age. I mean, they'd have to be able to speak. So they'd have to be four, four or older. But, 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 but no, but, Conscious. no, there's no question. I mean, no, but no, you know, someone said, a vaguely Danny sentient being. When, when, can I finish this rant? Yeah, Let go, me finish. Go, 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 go. So, so I, when the election happened, Danny Kahneman, my subject in the Undoing Project, said, you just elected a six-year-old. And the only thing wrong with that was, I don't know any six-year-olds who's as mean and nasty as he is. He's like a really mean six-year-old. Uh, mentally a six-year-old in many ways, but not, not, doesn't have the kindness of a, mm. most six-year-olds. And, but, so it's not a matter of like, you could, any American you picked out of a hat. I, I don't think there's a worse person for the job. I think, I don't think you could find anybody. You go into any American prison and, fi- and pick any of them out and you'd be better off than having this dude there. He's just like the worst. And I, I, the, my, you're a very political person. I know. You spend your life. You're I, dabble, be, I dabble. You'll I be dabble. prime minister one day. Yeah. No, things are not and, that desperate, yes, I can assure so you. Carry you'll on, you'll be prime minister one day. But I am not. I would rather think about other things. I was raised in a family where you didn't talk about religion or politics, and we got along very well. And, 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 yeah, and I, 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 I like, I, I've always thought in my friendships, in my relationships, that I don't prioritize your politics or your religion or anything like that. I care more about how you hold your views than what those views are. I can completely understand that people have, it's like their sexual tastes. They have a range, there's a range of things out there, you know, broad range of things that are basically acceptable. Uh, it takes a lot to provoke me. And I mean, really, I, I can accept, I can even, I mean, Bush was a little dim and I, the policies I disagree with, but I can see him as a human being. This guy, I can't. I mean, he's, he's just that bad. Okay, and, let me put this to you. I'm just trying to like, Let me just finish the likelihood. Go on, go keep the, ranting, keep ranting. So the sad, Run away. The sad thing is, I get the sense that, you know, when, during the election, I was thinking, Americans shouldn't be allowed to vote. Everybody outside of America. <laughs> everybody outside of America should be allowed to vote because you're the ones who are going to suffer. The likelihood that it comes back to haunt us it's, it's going to be, it's, you're at the end of the game of crack the whip and we're in the front. You're the little fat kid in the back and we're the big guy in the front. And, the, and you, you know, the, we, feel, we feel things in a very modest, it's like we're having a meander through the forest and your, your ass is banging off every tree. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so I thought, and now we, you've got this guy, he's, what he's going to do to you? I, I'm so sorry. But, uh, I mean... But here's, see if this is provocative. He is this mean six-year-old, fine. You can imagine him pulling the wings off insects in his private time for, just for giggles. He may well win in 2020 again. 
And what does that say about a Democratic Party establishment? Have they come to terms with why they lost? Because often it just seems like they treat 2016 like it was a weird administrative error. You know, this idea that, yes, of course, of course, you know, you know at the time, they'll say, we won the popular vote, but an asteroid hitting Earth was seen as more likely than Donald Trump becoming president. <laughs> they lost to a candidate who could never, it was seen, it was a farce that he could ever be president. And then it happened. Now, do you think the Democrats have come to terms with why they lost? And are they just going to repeat the same mistakes all over again? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't I, some part of me is slow to blame the Democrats and is quick to blame the American people. I mean, you know, you got to, we got to man up as a society. I was shocked by how disturbed the country was. I knew that there were 20% of the people who were crazy, but I didn't realize there were 40% of the people who were crazy. And, and, and the, it's, not, it's not that all the grievances are illegitimate, but really, 20% of the people were driven mad by the fact a black man was elected president. That's, that's one, I think that happened. And I think that happened. The reason I think that happened is when I go home to New Orleans, and I talk to my white male friends, especially my father's white male friends, the response to Obama is so visceral, it was so bizarre and so visceral because they'd love him if they knew him. He's just their kind of guy. He'd like kick their ass on the tennis court and they'd go have a beer with him and they'd love him. But the idea of a black guy being president is so overturned a lot of white guys' sense of their own status in the world. And I don't think we're, I think we're processing that still. I get, I get that. that but I, so, so what should the Democrats do? You want me to give them advice? God, yes. I mean, I look at it this way, that both political parties are a mess. Hmm. And what Trump tells you is that, for the moment anyway, you might be better off as a political candidate if you aren't actually a creature of the party. If you aren't an existing senator or a governor, you may not be as qualified for the job, but people aren't thinking about that anymore. They're thinking about do they like you and, uh, or do they identify with you. And so maybe what the Democrats need is a celebrity. I mean, maybe what they need is Oprah. She'd be great. She'd be fine. She's smart and she's kind and she'd figure it out. And she'd, but but it, it may be that's the way it goes. But as the, the idea, you've got this notion in your head that there's this organization like Microsoft hmm. that can that can build a better product. And I don't even know if that, or, that organization doesn't exist. Uh, I mean, who, who is it? But I suppose, I mean, before bringing the audience in, I mean, you're right, there's that chunk of America who, who are never going to be won over. And this idea of, you know, a lot of it is just backlash. It's pure white backlash. Uh, the, the fact that a majority of white people, including white women, voted for Donald Trump. But, there were many people who did not come out and vote because they regarded the Democratic Party as the establishment, as itself wedded to vested interests. Their lives were stagnating or getting worse. They weren't wrong. I mean, you know, I think the other traumatic event that is a necessary condition for the election of Donald Trump, in addition to a black man being elected president, is the financial crisis mm. and the response. The exactly. one, you can travel America if you want to get a cheap applause line, no matter where you are, even on Wall Street. You just talk about how at the back end of the financial crisis, it became very clear there were two sets of rules. One for these elite, rich, privileged Wall Street people and another set of rules for everybody else. Mm -hmm. One group of people got to live, had, had, to, had to endure capitalism and the other group 
did not. They got the upside, but not the downside. They could screw up not only their own businesses, but everybody else's lives, and they still got their bonuses. Mm-hmm. Maybe not for a year, but the next year. They didn't lose their jobs. Their businesses were allowed, were bailed out. That drove Socialism every- for the rich, capitalism That's for the exactly poor. That's exactly right. Yeah. Drove everybody, drives everybody crazy. It created the two anger movements in the, the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street. They, they are kind of at the, at the core of the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Trump campaign. Steve Bannon and Bernie Sanders agree about some things. Uh, and this is one of the things they agree about, that the, the existing elites, the structure, is a little rigged. Uh, and this was Trump's line, right? It was the, it's all rigged. The problem is, you know, some of it is rigged, but not all of it's rigged. And he's managed to, to undermine trust in everything. I watch him now. Can I make a prediction? Go on. All right, just because you got to do one, right? Uh, I will hold and this will, this will uh, the, the, I watch him. I'm trying to think, like, what's the logic of where this creature is going to move in the world and what's he going to do? And you watch, and I think about, you watch Amazon, the company. And there, there's a logic, it's devouring everything. And, but where, it goes where there are margins it can eat. Your margins are my opportunity. That was Bezos' line. And it's great for consumers and it has served its function, but you can just kind of see where they're going to go. With Trump, it's your trust is my opportunity. Mm. That it's, he's, he moves into places where, and he, he eliminates, he feeds on the trust, like feeds on the blood of the young. It's, 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 he feeds, he's undermined trust in the, in the media. He's undermined trust in the electoral process. Mm-hmm. It was going to be rigged. When he, before, when he thought he was going to lose, it was already rigged, right? Mm-hmm. Even what trust there was between Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill screwed that up. And I'm thinking, where, where is there trust left that he can feed on? And it's the financial system. Uh, people still believe the United States Treasury is going to pay off its debt. And people still think the dollar is a sound currency, even though we're being run like this, even though the country is clearly disturbed. Mm-hmm. How long is it before Donald Trump stands up at... Uh, one of his rallies, and says, the deficit, what's the deficit? Some treasury bonds. Who do we owe those to? The Chinese. Boo. Chinese. Uh, $2 trillion. He'll make up, whatever it is, he'll say, he'll, he'll say it's $20 trillion. We owe tra- $20 trillion, and we're not going to pay them back. That's going to be an applause line. That's the, and the minute that happens, man, hold on to your wallet. That's going to be trouble. So on that bombshell, I'm going to bring the audience in. Can we get some lights so I can see you? Um, and by the way, feel free to ask not just about this, his past work, his films, of course. Yeah, we can move on to other things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You catch me at the end of the book tour, and I've been kind of restrained. No, for some we, want, of it. we don't want restraint. But, 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 but People it's, do it's not just, want restraint it, in this room. Uh, uh, can I see? I'll, has someone been given a microphone? Yes. I've got a microphone. Uh, first, did you know that uh, Trump had just uh, fudged sessions by tweet? He did? He did. Uh, that's point one. So, <laughs> How come you don't know that? I think it's on it. I'm going to get on your game, I'm going to check that right now. Uh, God. Why did I so put it on airplane you mode? You have been concentrating. Ah. <laughs> Second, and this is a question for you, Owen. Um, no. I, yes, good. Me. Good. That's cheating. I'm not no, sure you can... I, I yes. chair the entity that has the looks after the governance of a lot of the state major state assets ranging from RBS to the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. Could you tell me the last time that you wrote a positive article about somebody who has the task of looking after something like the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority? Oh, blimey. Oh! So... That is cheating. So, so Next he, question! He's a, uh, where are you? 
Uh, so the gentleman over there. He's a young man just starting out. Got Give him time. Questions, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the, over there, sorry. 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 No, so, no, I'm taking them in three. That's how it works. Oh, and then everyone will forget the question. That's the no. idea. No, so, uh, so what are we doing? We're going to hear three questions and then we're going to answer all of them. Yeah, exactly. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the idea. Right. That's the idea. Yeah, next one. Super short one. Would uh, Pence be any better? God. Oh, what a world to live in. <laughs> um, right, next over there. And, and we do need a woman as well, so I'm going to make four because that's going to be... Oh, hello. Where? Just go I, for it. I just no. want to... Um, Thank you for your book. I, I want to ask whether the, the positive side to all this is the fact that somebody like you, Michael, who said yourself you kind of weren't a political animal before, whether people like you who maybe had a bit of a detached relationship with these questions have now been engaged, because that's important. And actually, under Obama, it was even easy for people to be complacent and feel like the country was being run by a reasonable person. Now everybody is concerned with what's happening to American democracy, and isn't that a good thing? And secondly, just very quickly, what do your father's friends make of your book? Ah, very good question. So I'll start, and I'll leave you more time to stew on the last okay, question. Okay, those two... Okay, hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah, so I'll, right, start, I'll answer the two that were more or less directed to me, towards me, or the three. So yes, that is the silver lining. My subject, Amos Tversky, uh, said to his famously pessimistic colleague, Danny Kahneman, uh, that your pessimism is stupid because when you're pessimistic, you live it twice. Once when you anticipate the bad thing happening and then the second time when it happens. So you try to rem- I try to remain optimistic just as a matter of principle. And my opti- that's, that is the optimistic answer is that, you know, he's the, one of the weird effects of Donald Trump is he will interest people in, the, in their government. He's forcing people to become engaged who, like me, might have been somewhat detached. I agree with that. I think that, that things may come out of this that are good things. My father's friends in New Orleans, they're all... So, it's lovely. They, I'm sure they completely disapprove of me in the privacy of their homes. But in the tennis club locker room, it's like, it's great he's got a book. You know, it's great your son wrote another book. Everybody keeps the, they try to keep the politics out of it. I'm seen as a screaming lefty uh, when I go back home. And I'm not really a screaming lefty, but in the context of uptown New Orleans, I guess I am. Uh, So what what they would say, the argument against, the argument I'll get back eventually, and I haven't got it back yet, which is very telling. So the, most of the time when I write a book, there are enough people who are pissed off at me about it that I hear about it right away. I mean, there'll be not just a couple of negative reviews, but there'll be blowback on talk shows. There'll be, and in this case, none. And the reason is the media has gotten so balkanized that I'm only reaching the people who agree with me. Uh, you know, I, I can't get on Fox News in America, but I can't get off MSNBC. And, uh, and so I, I'd be surprised if my message has ever actually reached my father's friends yet because they watch Fox News and they're not talking about this. Um, Pence. Pence. President so, Pence. So there was a ray of hope on election night when uh, Mike Pence, when Pennsylvania was called for Trump and it was clear that Trump was going to be president turned and tried to kiss his wife. And his wife pushed him away and said, leave me alone, Mike, you got what you wanted. So there is, that she couldn't stand Trump. Uh, There's, so he won't be able to pull off the Trump Act. He's not rich, not successful, he's clearly a wimp. Uh, You know, the minute he gets, he won't be able to stand up for those big rallies. That he, He wouldn't be better in in that, 
He's not a better man or anything like that, I don't think. I don't know. But he can't pull this off. This act requires so many levels of self-deception and narcissism and, and, and an infrastructure. You know, you've lived like this for long enough. You can defend yourself against every, all these people hating you justifiably. Uh, and I don't think Pence, Pence is a more socialized animal than, than Trump is. I don't think he'd be able to lead this movement in the same way. So in that way, uh, yeah. It but would he be believes that. in things and they're horrifying yeah, That's things. always, yes, but the thing is, he'd say it, and that would scare a lot of people in ways they're not scared right now. The, the kind of people who are along for the ride with Trump because he cut their taxes wouldn't want to start hearing about this religious stuff. Uh, so the, he would... You know, I, I just think he'd have more trouble organizing this movement. Trump is a, there's a perfect storm quality to Trump. Bannon says this. You know, I spent, I spent some time with Bannon for the book, but also just writing a separate magazine article. And uh, Bannon said, you know, I don't know anybody else who could have... In other ways, Bannon was very dismissive of Trump. It's not, like, he's not a smart guy. He, doesn't, he doesn't, uh, doesn't know anything about anything. But he's this blunt force instrument. Uh, and he's, he's really good at, at stoking anger. He's just really good at that. And for some reason, he's angry himself, which is mystifying, because what the hell does he have to be angry about? It's like, really, he's, he's been rich, he's born rich, stayed rich, screwed a lot of other people over, and people still treat him okay. Uh, I mean, much better than they should treat him. I, but he's managed to, to generate this anger in himself. Because he's from Queens, I guess. Uh, but 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 it's it's that's that's the you know it's uh, but and it, so there was one last question which you will take. Oh, I see. Yeah, um, there's many things I've been accused of. Not 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 writing articles defending the public sector is not probably top of the list. I mean, just to declare an interest, uh, I used to be a, a lobbyist in Parliament many years ago, working for the uh, Public and Commercial Services Union, which represents Britain's civil service. Uh, and my job was to quite literally lobby for those people. But since then, uh, I've written, I mean, how many articles have I written about the public sector workers in this country who prop up our society, whose wages have been slashed, whose pensions under attack, who were vilified by this government, who were vilified by the British media in, in the most disgraceful fashion, who were made to pay the price for a crisis caused by the financial sector, which not coincidentally, bankrolls the ruling party in this country. So I would say, in my defence, that there is no shortage of articles or all interventions that I've made in defence of, of the public sector. So um, Michelle Obama's mantra was, they go low, we go high. And it seems like Trump has been very successful with, we go low, we go lower. <laughs> and what I'm, what I'm referring to is the name-calling and dragging people through the mud and this um, relationship with identity politics and so on and so forth. Do you think that gets reined in because he has the House to answer to now? Um, and isn't that, I mean, at, at what point do the people become fatigued with this and, and want to hear more about policy? Great. And the man there, and while he's speaking, the woman here as well, just, just on the front row, front row here. Go for it. You told us about his negligence and incompetence as president. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's directly corrupt? Is he lining his own pocket as president? And then you. Go for it. I was just going to ask, um, in terms of the scope of your other books, did this feel more personal for you? Or... So, so go for it. Michelle, Bam, that, they go low, we go high. And do I think that? Trump is going to be changed or chastened in some way? Uh, the answer is no. I don't think he knows how to be another way. So, but what he will do... 
I mean, I think, he, I think he's frightened of, Na, that he, that, of the, I think he probably didn't fully appreciate what might be coming his way if the House went Democrat. Uh, and he's trying to cut this deal now. So he might, he might try to seem a little sweet for a while, but I don't think he knows how to do anything else, but be the way he is. I don't think, he doesn't have, he, he's not like an orchestra. He's like, he's like a, a tuba with one note. You know, that it, it's, it, it's got, he just has, he has one thing he can do. So it's, I don't know, I don't, he can't do anything else. Uh, second question. About being, is he not just incompetent, is he directly corrupt, do you think? Yes. Um, and I think in ways maybe he, He's not even got his own mind around. Uh, I mean, I think he's, look, he's basically a con man. Uh, and it's amazing that the con has worked so well. But there's a, there's a famous line, the best con men believe their own con. And so I think he basically also believes a lot of what he's saying when he's saying it. Uh, I think that if you go back, you rewind the tape of Trump Enterprises, there's this obvious great mystery, which is probably... Uh, wholly absorbed Robert Mueller. Uh, where did he get his money once the New York banks wouldn't lend him money? And that was, what, 1989, 1990. And I was just coming off of Wall Street then, and I can remember uh, people saying that they'd never do business with him again. I mean, he was a pariah. Uh, he, he, um, so someone bankrolled him, and we don't know who uh, bankrolled him. And I assume the money was Russian money. I, and what the, the, his relationship with... So in, in the same way, my disaster scenario where Trump tries to default on the debt to the Chinese and provokes a financial crisis, in some ways, if, you, if that happened, you would rewind the tape and you'd say, you know, there's nothing... I should have seen that coming. Uh, it, 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 everything seems to lead up to that. If it was revealed that Trump was actually a Russian asset, that he was actually just in completely under the thumb of Russian financial people, Vladimir Putin, controlled by Vladimir Putin. Would he do anything differently? I mean, if, if, you know, that, that you look back and you say, well, now I understand why he was doing what he was doing. I mean, if you control, if you were Vladimir Putin and you control the president of the United States, would you have him behaving any differently than Trump is behaving? I don't think you would. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there'd be a couple of little things. You'd have to keep him plausible so, I mean, I think it's almost a beautiful act uh, in that way. And so I think he's, he's got it bound up with Russian stuff. And, of course, his family is out. God knows, why are they so interested in Saudi Arabia? I mean, the Saudi Arabians, they love money, and the Saudi Arabians have money. I mean, something's going on there. Ivanka's running around China doing deals. Uh, I think yeah, there's a lot of corruption. He's, he doesn't care about corruption. Why wouldn't there be corruption? It's, uh, he's allowing people who've got direct financial interest in the matters of government to put their hands on the, the lever, those levers in government. Uh, so, so, yes. Just finally, before... We'll was have, the last that we missed one. About being... About, was this a more personal book for you than the other ones? Well, uh, so I've written, uh, I've written a couple of memoir-ish books. So in that sense, no. I mean, Liar's Poker. I wrote a book called Home Game about raising my kids. I wrote a book about my high school baseball coach. Those, I guess, are technically more personal books. Um, uh, I, I would say about this book, it was pretty heartfelt uh, because, because I felt that there's something very moving about people who, are, who have found causes beyond themselves, especially at this moment especially when they find it in the government. And, uh, and so those people 
I became very attached to. So in that sense, yes. Michael, um, Owen, thank you very much. So I just want to ask about the optimistic outcome here in, in, insofar as how challenged the U.S. has been since Trump was inaugurated, yet the democratic process is working very well. We don't have a wall. ACA, the Obama healthcare is still intact. We've just seen the reversal last night. Um, so to that extent, American democracy, I would posit, and I didn't vote for Trump, uh, I would posit is actually extremely strong. And many of the dire, I haven't read your book, Michael, I've read most of yours, consequences you're articulating are not really going to come to pass. You mentioned very clearly that your message is not going to go through to your hometown and you're not invited at Fox. And it feels like around this subject, it's really two-sided. Either you're pro-democrat, me too, and considered alienated by, uh, by the Republicans. So how do you help your message go through, basically? And then finally over there. I was just wondering, based on the beginning of the evening, whether you think the world has simply become too complex for democracy. Oh, blimey. Um, sorry. <laughs> what a question. Um, yeah, so that point. Uh, yeah, optimi- here, here are my answers. Yes, I don't know, and you might be right. I can try to do more. I can, try, I can do better than that. Well, to be in a take, I mean, in Hungary, Orban came to power. Hungary was a, a, a democracy. It's now turning into an autocratic regime. The same happened in Turkey. But could there be a, the argument that actually the institutions and culture of American democracy would mean that couldn't happen in the same way? I suppose, you know, it's all, the, all those... So I think we're much more robu- a much more robust democracy. Than I think he's right. I think there's a chance it bounces in a completely different and unexpected direction. You can't say that bad things haven't already happened. Um, I mean, he's, he's, trust in the democracy is at, at lows. He's undermined trust in the justice system. He's undermined trust in the media. Um, we've got this very, it's not his fault, it's not his doing, but we've got this very strange situation where people get to choose their own facts. Uh, And exactly how you ever get to a compromise or any kind of of rational solution uh, with big complicated subjects when people can choose their own facts, uh, I mean, that's a mystery. Uh, he's, he's, He's behaved, he's shown as acceptable enough that you can be president while behaving this way. That it's, o- that it's okay to behave in these kinds of ways. And he set an exa- a horrible, horrible example for, a lot, for the entire country. So all these things are bad things. In addition, he's got kids in cages on the, on the, on the border, on the Mexican border. He's got people who've died in Puerto Rico because of the mismanagement of the, of the hurricane relief. I mean, there, bad things have happened. It's just... He's been really lucky nothing worse has happened. Just quickly, uh, this time is going to... Yeah, I don't know if we get so, dragged off by security when it goes to zero. Uh, but that point about getting your message across. Yeah, to people. So you know, if I had the answer to that, I'd have already done it. I do, think, I do think that if the book is turned into a really good series of films uh, and done in a, a way that's open, that invites everybody in, that helps. And there's only so much I can do. I do think that storytelling has a powerful role to play here. And I think the whole narrative in the country needs to be shifted. Someone needs to be able to sell government. It's going to likely be a Democrat, but it's got to be a positive message. And, you, and I think, you know, the truth is that once people know what the government's doing for them, it's amazing how, 
how it shifts their thinking. I've got an hour, a minute, 24 seconds. Can I, can I end by just describing the journey one of my characters, characters takes in this book? His name's Ali Zaidi. He is uh, born in Pakistan. His family moves to Western Pennsylvania. He is raised, believe it or not, uh, he's a lower middle class, working, working class kid in Western Pennsylvania, Muslim, and a devoted Republican. He believes in picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. He doesn't need help from anybody else. He's, he, 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 believe, he sees the power of free markets. Um, he becomes a very active young Republican in high school. So active, his, he's, he comes to the attention of Colin Powell, who, when he's a senior in high school, puts, Colin Powell puts him on the board of his national charity. And he's hobnobbing with very senior figures in the Republican Party. He goes to Harvard. Uh, and at Harvard, he's exposed to a debate between Bush's economic advisor, Gregory Mankiw, and Michael Sandel, who's a philosopher. And Katrina has just hit New Orleans. And that they're debating about whether it's right to jack up the price of necessities, water, in the wake of the hurricane for the people who are there and, and trying to survive. And Mankiw says this is how markets work. And Sandel takes the other argument, argues against him. And as Ali Zaidi is listening to this argument, he thinks, you know, I kind of agree with Sandel. I kind of agree that there are places where markets shouldn't be. There are places where we're more than just, we're more than just markets. And, but he's still a Republican. He then goes down to New Orleans to work, to do, to do relief work with Colin Powell's organization. He's in a, uh, an elementary school one of the worst of the worst. And you can see that the kids there, n there are no bootstraps. The kids there are going to, they're, they're destined for failure in life because they're, they're not, they weren't being, being given an education. They're so grateful for the reforms that are taking place after the hurricane because they finally have a school that works a little bit. At that point, he goes, oh, Christ, maybe I'm not a Republican. Then he hears Obama give a speech. And Obama gives a speech, and Obama's a senator at this point. And in the speech, there's a line, poverty is not a family value. He's attracted to Obama. He goes to work on the Obama campaign. One thing leads to another. And as a 24-year-old, he finds himself in the office of the management of the budget, working for Obama, and bounced up fast because he's smart, to the point where he is overseeing three of the department's budgets, maybe four of the department's budgets, including the Department of Agriculture. He's paging through the budget, seeing what it does, where the money's going. The story he's told himself up to that point is, I, you know, I, I've made this journey uh, politically, but, but I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. You know, I, I did it. I'm here because of my hard work and my merit. He sees that the Department of Agriculture built the school he went to, built the firehouse that, that uh, served his town, fed him his meals at school which he otherwise could not have afforded. One thing after another, the infrastructure of his childhood, which enabled him to get on in life, was provided by the federal government. Uh, and it's, it's overwhelming when you realize that. It, ch it changes his view of the government. And I think that if you tell stories where, in, that enable people to see their true relationship to this enterprise, rather than the toxic relationship that has been peddled by in the, in the political process, that, that you can... You can, you can get to the other side. They'll listen to stories if they're well told. 
So that's the only, that, that, that's all I could do anyway, but that's, that's my answer to the question. Now, time is unfortunately up. We can't solve the issue of world democracy, I'm afraid, because time really is up. Uh, but I, I think we can all agree that's been an absolutely fascinating, riveting, occasionally quite horrifying exposition. Thank you so much. Please give a big round of applause to Michael Lewis. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Michael Lewis and was presented by Owen Jones. It was produced by Sam L. Granty and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. Once again, Michael is returning to London for a big event with us next month. And if you'd like to come, use the code HOWTOPOD on the ticket page. Hope to see you there. And thanks for listening. <laughs>